Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week, again, I thought we'd already covered this case. I was adamant we had covered this case, but we haven't. So that's good because I'm looking forward to doing it. And this case is set in Greenock, which is about 25 miles from Glasgow. So yeah, this week I'm going to tell you the story of the murder of Elaine Doyle. Samantha, have you heard of Elaine Doyle? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if anyone's wondering why Samantha's laughing, we've just had to restart because I just started talking about something completely wrong and didn't realise. So this is all. This is, this I'm is sorry. I'll be professional. Right, right. come on. Um, say it. <laughs> uh, no, I've not heard of Elaine Doyle. Perfect. I will. Yeah, yeah you've only heard of me talking about her for the last five minutes, but <laughs> yeah. I basically had her hometown wrong and started telling you all about a completely different place. Anyway, so this story starts on Monday the 2nd of June 1986, when the police receive a call at half seven in the morning from a member of the public who had been going to their car to go to work and actually found a body in a lane off a street. It was a naked female who was found lying face down and just in the lane as well beside her body was a blue leather jacket, a pair of shoes and a black and white dress. Now it was PC Alan Stewart who went and confirmed that the female had died. The surrounding area is starting to be cornered off and actually quite quickly a murder inquiry begins, which is really good. Um, Where her body is found is in like a kind of housing estate bit. So they basically just start inquiring the whole area because... It's not like it's in the middle of nowhere. Like it's there would have been a lot of people around. So they start kind of doing the door to doors. What they can see from the scene of the crime is there was obviously a bit of a struggle as they find a clump of hair and she also had a black eye. So it shows that she did put up a bit of a fight. She had also been struck on the head, but her cause of death at her autopsy was actually asphyxia, which is like strangulation basically. Um, so her face seemed to have been pushed into the ground. The person has like lent or like stamped on her back and they've placed something around her neck to strangle her. However, there was nothing, like there wasn't like a rope or something lying at the scene. There's no evidence of sexual assault, but obviously, as I said, she was found naked. So I don't know if maybe sexual assault was part of the plan and they maybe got disturbed. I don't know if they maybe tried to, like I completely understand if they were taking the clothes off to like hide the evidence of them, but they've left the clothes there. So I actually don't really know why she's found with no clothes on, but she was. So the police, as I said, have started doing the door to door and they go to a block of flats, which are quite near, and they go to a woman's house named Maureen Doyle. Now, as they go in, Maureen actually explains to the police that her 16-year-old daughter had not returned from a night out last night, and they were concerned about her. So, obviously, the police kind of go back down, like, because she's described what clothes she was wearing, and they believe, like, after speaking to a superior officer, that this is the woman's daughter. However, an official ID would have to be done. Now, the woman's daughter is actually 16-year-old Elaine Doyle. Now, Elaine lived at home with her parents, Jack and Maureen, and her older brother, John. She got on well with her parents, and I think she actually had a good relationship with her brother as well. Like, I think they started drifting apart as they were teenagers, but that obviously happens often. Um, she lived in a flat in Greenock, so I don't know if any of you know where Greenock is, but it's basically a town in like the Inverclyde area of Scotland. 
um, it's got a population of like 45,000 people. So I think it's quite a kind of busier town. I don't think I've ever been to Greenock. And in the nicest way possible, I don't think I've had a reason to go to Greenock. I don't think there. Samantha, have you been to Greenock? I've only been once when I was 14. Okay. We did that youth sailing thing and we set off there from the harbour. I think it's quite big on um, like industrial things, or it was back in the day and it was big on, I want to say possibly shipbuilding or something. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. That's all I have to say about Greenock. Thank you. Yes. Well, if any listeners are from Greenock and there's a reason to go, let me know because I've just never been. But it's like 25 miles kind of west of Glasgow near the Clyde if anyone's kind of wanting to picture it. She worked as a jeweler's assistant in a shop. So she had obviously left school and she was known as like a bubbly, happy girl who loved dancing. And most of the weekend she actually goes to like the discos in Greenock which seemed to be quite a popular thing. Now, on Saturday, the 31st of May, 1986, she went to a local pool hall with her friends and she actually stayed at her best friend Lynn Ryan's house after. Now, on the Sunday afternoon, she left Lynn's and she went into town shopping, got herself some clothes and then went home to get ready for a disco that was happening that night. She wore a black and white dress and a blue leather jacket. Um, The disco was at the Greenock Celtic Supporters Club, which was a 10-minute walk away from our house. Elaine called her parents at about 11.30 at night to say she'd be home at about 12.30 a.m. At 11.30, the girls are seen going to like a burger stall and at about midnight, she walked the 15-minute walk home herself. Like, she didn't stay at her friends. She kind of, I think she turned down a lift as well. So she just went back herself. So that morning, obviously Maureen, bless her, the mum has just opened the curtains and seen like lots of police outside. She began phoning around, so she phoned Lynn's parents, she phoned Elaine's friends and like nobody had seen her. The last person, like the last people that saw her were her friends and said they saw her walking home at midnight. Now, this is like a part that it does really annoy me, but I do under- I get the kind of mindset. So the body, as I'd said, was in like a view of local flats, like it was in a kind of housing area. So obviously they decided to start hanging up blankets to try to block out the view. But one of the police officers decided to, like, keep her dignified and threw a blanket over her that was in the back of the police car before any DNA was taken. So they've, like, placed a a blanket from a back of a police car on top of her body. So it was obviously that. I can understand, but then at the same time, do the job first, take the evidence, help the, like, the seat, like, the murder. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't just wipe it all the way with a blanket. Yeah, exactly. Like, I get it. I do get it. But yeah, as you said, like, take the DNA first. So they couldn't really get much fibres or, like, hairs, etc. So I think superiors officers, I think, were a bit annoyed at that. But they do, like, strip samples, which I didn't know what they were. But, like, the best way to describe it is, like, a bit of sellotape almost. And they take them, like, off the skin. And they basically kept them in case one day the DNA can be done. Because obviously this was way back in the infancy of DNA. Um, she was transported to the mortuary. And this is when she was ID'd correctly. And it was confirmed that this was Elaine Doyle. Um, a press appeal began for any witnesses to bring like information forward. As police believed they had a line of inquiry as her bag was actually missing. So that was the main thing is like finding her bag. However, this kind of like fizzled out quite quickly as her bag was found on the steps of a library three minutes walk away, and it was burnt. Now, they don't actually know if it was the murderer who burnt it, or if someone, like, found it and burnt it. They don't know, but I think that's a bit weird that her bag was, like, burnt with all the contents inside. 
and suspicious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine, like this really shook Greenock. Like people were a bit on edge. Like as I said, it was quite a small wee town. Like nothing. This doesn't happen. So a report came in that a ginger-haired man was acting strange in a state in Greenock. So a sketch was done and people began pointing fingers at like any ginger-haired, auburn-haired man in Greenock at that time, basically. And this actually went like way too far. Like someone actually got attacked on night out for looking like them and everyone was shouting abuse that he like killed that girl, etc. But like no one had put this together. It was just something they kind of wanted to look at. The police are still doing door to door, but it was such a big area that they basically wanted to speak to everybody on the route she walked home. But because Elaine was actually being safe, she walked along like a busy, well-lit road. So there was actually more houses to go through. And they also spoke to everyone. So when you went into the club, you had to like sign in your name. They also spoke to everyone that signed into the club that evening as well. So a mobile police unit was actually set up for this case alone. So people could go so that you could actually go and like if you had anything to say. But it took seven to eight months to complete the door to door. There was 14,000 names taken, along with 4,500 statements. So, like, as you can imagine, that is a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, And there was also quite a lot of witnesses, and there was quite a lot of suspects. So police actually had a lot of work to do. And one of the main kind of witnesses was Lynn Ryan, who's her best friend. So they asked if there was anyone that she thought would harm Elaine, and she mentioned a boy called William Campbell, who was kind of nicknamed Daft Willie. No, it's actually came out that he had like learning difficulties and he played in the local pool hall and like Elaine would joke that he was like her boyfriend, etc. And he had ginger hair. Um, Lynn said it wouldn't surprise her if he had turned violent on her. Um, but I don't think there's like any proof of this whatsoever. Elaine also had told Lynn that a blue car had followed her at some point as well. When showed the sketch, Lynn then said it looked like a man named Francis McCurdy. Um, who <laughs> this bit does make me laugh sorry it wasn't him his name's cleared and they actually get married <laughs> no way really yeah, that made me laugh a wee bit. imagine being like mm, he looks like he could have murdered my best pal no I didn't oh I'll marry him <laughs> yeah that made me laugh so there was quite a lot as I'd said earlier there was a lot a lot of suspects so I'm going to go through some of the main ones like like stuck out to me but I won't go through them all because as I said there's like 400 odd statements, 4,000 odd statements. This will be the longest episode ever. So the first one I want to talk about is 18-year-old Alan Clearly. Now, he walked past the jewellers quite a lot and he'd actually bought something from her before. Now, he told the detective, she was a good-looking girl, but he never really showed any interest in her, didn't, like, chat up, etc. And he said he was out that night, described his outfit, um, described, like, that he, what he was wearing. Like, he said he saw her at the burger van in the early hours of the morning. But the last time she was seen the burger van was half 11 so that wasn't the early hours in the morning so when he realizes he's messed up he asks his friend to be an alibi so his friend's obviously like no which good on the friend so he goes to the police and was like oh i lied like i, I wasn't out i was at home with my parents wearing a complete different outfit and i'm like and like maybe just be like i got the timing wrong at the burger van like you don't no so like, he said oh i was yeah. home yeah, so he said he lied. Is he went a walk on his own that time at night and didn't want to look suspicious. And I was like, that to me makes you look suspicious. <laughs> that you were like, oh, yeah, oh, I saw it at the burger van. Yeah, yeah, I did. I didn't. 
<laughs> okay. Um, there was also two ex-prisoners, 19-year-old Robert Brown and 17-year-old Brian Buckley, who were out looking for a house to break into. Um, and when they were... At least they were honest. Case, yeah, fair enough. No, they said they were just like... One of them said they were taking another one a walk to show them like the fancy houses, which, as I said, fair enough. Like, at least they're not like Alan, who's saying he's at home. They're actually just like, yeah, we're, we're out. Um, the, so, basically... Yeah, they were just out, and they basically said, Brian said they were both out to rob houses. Um, Like, Robert said he wouldn't do anything like this, and that Brian, he didn't think he would commit murder either, but obviously I think it's just because the fact they were in prison before that they looked suspicious to police, but it's very clear they're not murderers, they're just robbers. Um, There was also a man named Donald McCurdy. He was a clerical assistant for Strathclyde Police, and he had a blue car matching the description of the car that was meant to be following her. Um, it was actually his dad's car and he borrowed this car quite often and then he made a bit of a weird statement which is why I'm mentioning him he said that he would go out but not to intentionally look at girls but he did and I'm like okay so what so you went yeah. out to look at girls just not intentionally it just, looked it just happened <laughs> yeah so now there's Colin Dominic so this is a bit of a weird one like I'm quite the next couple are more interesting than those ones I've told you, I promise. So Colin Dominic, his friend, basically asked him into the police, saying he spoke about the murder loads and had said that she was killed by a car aerial and a belt. That's what strangled her. Now, he had a blue car and would drive about town at night to watch the girls like, going into clubs, etc. But Colin denied all of this, obviously, and said he knew nothing. However, what wasn't released to the public is that a car aerial was found near the body. But they never associated this with strangling her. But he said that she was killed with a car aerial. So that obviously doesn't make him look great. But I don't think there was any other evidence pointed towards him. There was also another boy called Colin. But this was 16-year-old Colin McIntyre. Who basically told detectives where he was. And they weren't satisfied with this. So it's alleged he went and made a further statement. But Colin completely denies this. And the reason I say alleged is because it's actually unsigned. So it's a statement from Colin, but he's not signed it. And this is mental. So he said he was bullied by detectives and they made up this statement. And the statement basically says that him and his friends saw Elaine walking home on her own. They decided to walk him home. One of his friends tried to like kiss her. So a struggle ensued with his friend and Elaine. And then basically she fell over and hit her head. They thought she was dead. So they strangled her to make sure she was dead. And this is all in like a statement. But obviously no charge has been brought forward and... Colin's like seen as innocent because he didn't sign it and he's saying that it actually wasn't him that wrote it, it was the detectives. So I really don't understand this one. And the last one mm-hmm. is 22 year old. like we're just trying to pin it on someone. Yeah. So the last one is 23 year old Martin Brown, who he had lived there and he moved away and he came back to his parents' house to watch the World Cup. And he was walking home and he witnessed a female being closely followed by a male and he said the male had quite big eyes and an angry um, expression now he actually Martin I'm going to mention him again later on because he actually becomes quite crucial in this case but I just have to mention that he said he had auburn hair but it actually comes out Martin's colour blind so that was like my cousin at Christmas who thought he finished a Rubik's Cube and then we went Adam you're colour blind he didn't finish it (laughs) Oh no. Anyway, he also said that he was tall, slim, and had some kind of military tattoos. So that was quite a good description. So, yeah, he wasn't a suspect, but he saw this guy 
and I don't think they were able to identify him at the time. Now, the reason I just wanted to read them out to you is I don't think we've ever covered a case that had that many suspects. Like, there were so many people that could have been, and there were so many people that were just a bit weird and given, like, weird statements. I don't really know why. So Yeah, I don't understand it. It's like, if you didn't do it, just be honest. Like, I feel like most of them, you would be like, actually, yeah, they seem quite guilty. So I don't really understand... I don't know if it was just a thing, maybe, which we've heard of before, where, like, they maybe just want to say that it was them. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Do you know, that sounds a bit silly, but it's like they want to be involved. Like, that guy that said he saw it, it's like he wants to be like, oh, I saw that girl. No, he didn't. Yeah, you were at home in bed. <laughs> yeah, shut up. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, so, Elaine's dad campaigns relentlessly. Like, he's the kind of main guy behind this campaign. And the family carry on, obviously, kind of fight for her. But this case goes cold, and it actually goes cold for like 20 years. And in 2005, a forensic review is carried out. Now, obviously, her clothes were quite contaminated. Um, but detectives in 1986 got good samples. Remember those ones, the sellotapey ones I said. And they were actually sent away. And they found a trace of DNA from her face and back and got a profile. However, the only issue was it's that database where they didn't have a match. So they just need to find a match. Now, they went through statements and got the list down to 700 suspects. And they decided to go and get DNA from all of them, basically. And this cold case team was set up in 2011 and it was called Operation Evergreen. And it was 40 people based in the Greenock Police Station. And that was all they were working on was this case. And they went to collect DNA from all 700 of these suspects. They had to get help from like Canadian authorities, etc. As people had, like moved abroad. So they actually got all these people. Now, one of the people on the list was a man named John Doherty, who actually was missed being questioned back in 1986. Now, he actually went to the club that Elaine was in and his friend was interviewed and police actually made a note that was found on a bit of paper saying, like, track down and eliminate him. But it actually was never done. It was just overlooked. So he was on their list to go and check. Now, on the 2nd of June 2011, this is actually the 25th anniversary and Jack, her dad, actually makes a televised appeal saying they'd basically been robbed watching her grow up into like adulthood, etc., which, of course, is really, really sad. But then, unfortunately, on the 6th of January 2012, he actually died of cancer. Now, the next one I'm going to tell you is so, so sad, but it's just, like, unbelievable, right? Jack passed away three days after finding out his grandson, so Elaine's brother, 17-year-old Jack, was murdered. No so way. his daughter and his grandson were murdered. He was stabbed through the heart and that murderer's actually been caught and jailed for life. Bloody but hell. Like, what an absolute tragedy for that family. So they basically have the whole the John Doherty thing, just going back to that. But there's actually three John Doherty's that are in Greenock. So they found the right one in the May of 2012. Now, he would have been 21 at the time and he went to school with her brother. They don't know if they were friends or whatnot, but he went to school with a brother. He lived with his parents, a 19-minute walk from Elaine's, and at the time he was engaged. He had left Greenock a year after the murder and joined the army for six years and was more than willing to give a sample when they like asked him about it. He was so open about it. He was like, yeah, of course, Like I was at the club with her, like, take a sample, more than happy to help, blah, blah, blah. His DNA matched the profile that was found on Elaine. They like couldn't believe it, so this was like one in a billion hit. So they're like, the chances of it being anybody else was one in a billion. So it was 100% his DNA that was found on her face and back. 
But what they obviously needed to find out was, like, had he met Elaine before? He said he didn't. He only knew her kind of through the brother. But they needed to track down his friends and basically go through his life, like, minute by minute and find out what kind of led him there. But obviously they didn't want to cause any suspicion. Like, they didn't want him to realise they were, like, looking into him. So they contacted Martin Brown, the man, remember Martin Brown, colourblind Martin, who said he saw the man. And they showed him mm-hmm. a photo of John Doherty and Martin was able to identify him. So on the 22nd of March 2013, police arrested John Doherty, 26 years and nine months after the murder. Now, of course, he denies absolutely everything about this and says the only things he knew was like what had been put in the papers. Like he didn't know anything about this murder, like that kind of thing. He said he was with his parents that night, but they've actually both died. So he couldn't have an alibi. He gave absolutely no reason why his DNA was there, which is, you know, actually he could have said like, oh, I saw her that night. Like I know her, gave her a hug or whatever. But he said he's got absolutely no reason that his DNA was there. So on the 23rd of March, he was charged with this and it went to court a few days later, had a private hearing um, and he was charged with the murder, but was granted bail. Which I'm really confused about, yeah. So when I read this, I was like, oh my God, Betty did a runner. He didn't, but he was granted bail. So he could live as a normal person until his trial, which was actually the following year. It was the 10th of February, 2014, when he went and faced his charges. So he was being charged with murder, assault and theft, I think. So obviously he took her belongings, but he denies all three of them. It's like absolutely nothing to do with me and can't give a reason about anything really. So the trial begins on the 24th of February in Edinburgh's High Court. It's the first case to come to trial following on from like a cold case investigation, which was really good. But as he's going to court, like the whole community of like um, Green Arc are like shocked by this, like his friends, his family, like no one suspected this. Like he was a quiet, like family man, like it was just like completely random. So in the opening days of the trial, they did mention the fact that 700 odd men were brought down to 41 odd. I spoke to you about this earlier. And all 41 of these men were cross-examined in the trial. So can you imagine how long that took? So Martin Brown took to the stand and said that he recognised the male. So Donald Finlay, who's a defence counsel, asked how he could recognise him when he couldn't ID a photo. However, like ID a photo off the girl. Like, remember, he said he couldn't, like... I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, sorry, I think I actually forgot that. He, when asked if the man, remember he said the man was following a girl, when asked if it was Elaine he was following, he said he wasn't sure. But, like, now that he's been shown better photos of Elaine, he says he thinks it definitely was her. Um, And then he also asked, Donald Finley asked, how could he be sure it was Doherty? And Martin Brown had narrowed down 12 mugshots to three, and in one of the three was John Doherty. So that's the kind of behind that. Then the forensic scientist Pauline McSlory, I think her name is, she basically said two results were found on her back and face that weren't accounted for until they got John Doherty's samples. Defence obviously brought up the blanket, which actually, fair enough, I completely, completely get why the blanket was brought up because I do think that wasn't great. But then how is John Doherty's DNA on a blanket in the back of a police car? That makes it even more complicated. Like his DNA is still there. It doesn't matter what contamination has been done. His DNA is still there. Mm-hmm. Now, his ex-fiancée, Linda Hargate, actually takes a stand and Linda was aware that he had gone to the Celtic club that evening. So 
he she suggested when the police obviously did that remember i said they did the kind of pop-up thing she suggested that he go and speak to the police but he actually said no there was no need for him to because he hadn't signed in the visitor book that night so they'd never know he was there now when john was in the army i think this is when the relationship kind of went downhill and they'd argue quite a lot and linda brought up elaine saying basically what would happen to your army career if i told the police you didn't go forward and he like completely lashed out about this. Like, I think he pushed her and was like, don't you ever say that to me again. So Linda never came forward, which I do understand because he sounds a bit rad, but she obviously now has. And I do think that's incriminating in itself. The fact he never signed into this book and he didn't go forward when, as you said, there were so many people going forward. But also it is just, I want to say bad luck that the police forgot to interview him. But it just, I wonder what would have happened if they had interviewed him in 1986. Anyway, there was 52 days of evidence and there was a jury of eight women and seven men. Now, the jury actually only deliberated for four hours and they found him guilty on the 17th of June. His sentencing was deferred to August and on the 5th of August 2015, he was given a life sentence with a 21 year minimum before he could apply for parole. Now, Donald Finley, the Defence Counsel, said that Doherty was adamant he was a miscarriage of justice and was, like, adamant that, like, this could not be right. There was, like, no way. He actually appealed this the following year on the 20th of May, so only, like, after being in jail for a few months, but that was actually rejected. Um, So he also um, appealed his, like, sentence, like, not his crime, but the actual sentencing, um, and John Doherty said that it was excessive, but this was also rejected. Um, the judge over it was Senior Judge Lord Justice General Lord Carloway and he said this was a compelling circumstantial case and the appeal against conviction is refused. Now there's actually, if people were interested or wanted to know more about this case, there's an episode of Murder Time with Catherine Kelly. I don't know if you've ever watched that, Samantha, but I think it's on Prime or Netflix. No, I couldn't on... get it. It wouldn't allow oh. me. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is, but they actually go over her case, Elaine's case, and actually explain about it. But yeah, that's me just kind of coming to an end, really. So that's the story of Elaine Doyle, if there's anything you want to add, Samantha. Um, no, but that's kind of crazy. Like, fantastic news that someone's been charged um Mm -hmm. 20 odd years later Mm -hmm. but like you say all of the evidence kind of does point to him but like there's not tons to be like it doesn't sound like there was tons no and i think so many of them look like dodgy characters but i think as well it is that thing of the police did mess up here like they made a note saying they had to go and interview him and they didn't so actually, like, if they had done that, as I'd said earlier, what would have happened? Yeah, I, I think, think he they... would have acted differently and not have been as willing. Like, I think 25 years later, he was like, yeah, sure, you can take my ID. Because he was, if he did do it, he'd be, like, cocky because he'd be like, well, you clearly have nothing or else you would have got me by yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing, though, as we said, there's not a lot of evidence against him. But I feel like the minute there's DNA evidence, that's it, really. Yeah. You can't argue with DNA. No, not at all. As much as you can say, like, I've never seen her. Like, you know, if he'd even said, oh, actually, yeah, fair enough. I met her that night. I gave her a hug or whatever. But the fact that he's like, I have not been in her space at all. And it's like, well, your DNA is on her. You can't really argue with that. And it's on face and back. And then also 
you didn't sign into a club and you were like, oh, 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 this is fine. I don't need to talk to them. So like, exactly. come on, if you didn't do it, you would have talked to them anyway. So yeah, that's wild. I can't believe I've never heard of that one before. Yeah, me neither. I think because it's an older one as well. Do you know, it was obviously the 80s. Mm-hmm. True. So is a bit older. But yeah, I'm glad that someone's been done with it. I think obviously his appeals have kept getting rejected. Um, he's obviously served, what, like 10 years now? So you'll be able to apply for parole in like 33. Yeah. But he's obviously older now as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Interesting. Very interesting. And fantastic that a cold case got solved. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 